<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends and neighbors. Here we go with the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for joining us. We just passed a milestone, the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's first year in office, and, to put it mildly, the reviews are mixed. In last week's news conference, the president himself said he'd made enormous progress on getting COVID under control, creating new jobs, rebuilding the economy, and passing giant stimulus and infrastructure bills. But critics cite his low poll numbers an awkward exit from Afghanistan, and his failure to get voting rights and his Build Back Better plan through Congress as signs of a weak presidency. Some Republicans, in fact, have compared Joe Biden to Jimmy Carter unfavorably. But one presidential historian, Jonathan Alter, who's written a highly respected biography of Jimmy Carter, says that that comparison may actually be more positive for Biden than people think. Jonathan Alter, his column called Old Goats on Substack, check it out, a contributor on MSNBC and the author of four best-selling books on FDR, Barack Obama, and Jimmy Carter, joins us today to take a look at year one of the Biden presidency. Jonathan Alter, it's been a long time. Good to reconnect with you and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Great to be with you, Bill. So, uh, you know, we celebrate these anniversaries in this country, and we just celebrated another one, or at least marked uh, the first year anniversary of the Biden presidency. If you just look at the facts, Jonathan, um, as the White House is quick to point out, uh, vaccinations have increased from 20 million Americans to 210 million, 6 million new jobs, record growth, uh, economy coming back. He got the stimulus package passed, the infrastructure passed, which, as you have pointed out, uh, is more than LBJ and FDR got combined in new federal spending. So why isn't Joe Biden getting more credit for year number one? Uh, I think um, there's a two word answer. COVID inflation. And, you know, so you had this expectation that Biden actually articulated that everything was going to be over by the 4th of July because they had had this very, very successful uh, vaccination campaign, which before um, the uh, merchants of death on uh, Fox and elsewhere uh, pushed back. And, and, you know, before you had people like Aaron Rodgers with blood on his hands, which we can get to, um, you know, we were the leading the world in the first half of last year in vaccinating our people. So there was this expectation um, that the combination of that and um, the fact they had already uh, passed a huge COVID relief package in late February and were headed for, you know, other legislative victories, that this would, um, this good news would continue. Two things happened over the summer. One was that 
the uh, Delta variant proved to be um, uh, powerful enough that a vaccination did not prevent you from spreading mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Even if you didn't get terribly sick, if you'd been vaccinated, you could spread it. And um, this was a shock to the CDC in, in July right. and a shock to the White House. So once that happened, and then you had a very bad month for um, Biden with the messy withdrawal from Afghanistan, suddenly he was thrown off balance and his best laid plans were uh, kind of in tatters going into the fall when Delta worsened and then we got hit by uh, by the Omicron variant uh, at the end of the year. So, you know, he's been hit by these external events. I think if inflation had proved transitory the way uh, Paul Krugman predicted, and he's admitted that he was wrong about that, that Biden wouldn't be in such bad shape. But uh, you have um, the worst inflation in 40 years, and that's that's going to really put a damper on the economic good news. Is part of the problem that we as Americans are um, too impatient, right? Or that uh, our expectations are too high, particularly after four years of Donald Trump? Yeah, I do think that that's, that's uh, a bit of a problem. Um, I, I don't think it's, and you hear this a lot in Washington, that, you know, oh, Biden, he was trying to be FDR and the American people yeah. reacted badly to his big ambitions. That's com- Complete bull. Uh, the the each element of these ambitious Build Back Better program and infrastructure plan. These are all very popular, um, as is voting rights. So it's uh, it's partly an expectations game. Uh, it's partly the fact that um, he doesn't uh, he stacks up really well against. Um, Donald Trump, obviously, for Democrats and a number of independents, but he doesn't stack up that well against Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. So you have to remember who he's being compared to and where the expectations lie. So there was a kind of a funny bit that Bill Maher had on his show last week where you know he said, well, why don't you know Biden and Obama technically divorce their wives and then Biden and Obama can gay marry and Obama can become (laughs) first lady. And instead of, you know, having a uh, uh, weight control uh, project uh, the way uh, Michelle Obama did or, (laughs) you know, bullying the way amazingly enough, that was Trump's issue. You know, he can just run the federal government. Um, And, you know, it was, it sort of, tapped into the fact that um, even though, you know, Democrats don't think Obama was perfect, he set a different standard. He was obviously much younger. And this is a point that my son makes, Bill, I think is very important, that especially after Obama and Trump, the president has to be a performer of some kind. Right. They have to live inside American popular culture and connect to the public at a performative level. And while there was a time maybe when Joe Biden could do that and, you know, he could drive his Mustang and put on the sunglasses or whatever. Right. He's really just too old to do that at this point. And so Mm -hmm. he's never going to, while people respect him, 
and I think they're comforted by him and they know he's a decent man. And his personal numbers, by the way, are still very high. Like people have a lot of affection for Mm -hmm. Joe Biden, but they're not going to think he's cool. And that's just not going to happen. He doesn't have that jazz or that energy that I remember uh, as a senator, right? Where right. he was, he was fun, and he was, and he was sort of a uh, a, a character. But you, I heard you a phrase that you used on uh, Morning Joe the other other day, um, the Green Lantern theory, which resonated with me. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. So this is was first uh, articulated by a a political science professor named Brendan Nyan. And basically, you know, everybody knows the Green Lantern, um, you know, comics. Comics, right. 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 So the Green Lantern is a superhero. And um, the basic idea is that a lot of the American public, they think the president runs everything. Right. Right. And that he can just wave a magic wand. When I was writing my, I wrote two books about um, Barack Obama, um, one about Franklin Roosevelt, and I think he had this problem too. Um, And at that time, um, the Obama White House called it the magic wand theory. (laughs) I remember. You know, that the public uh, and a lot of people in Washington and in the press, they expect, oh, the president can get this bill through. He's the president. Yeah. He can get this through. And they, they just kind of forget that, no, there's this co-equal branch of government called the Congress, and they have a lot of their own ideas, and they weren't sent there just to rubber stamp the president. And there's this other thing called the Federal Reserve, which actually has a hell of a lot more to do with the American economy than anything that the president does. And they're also independent, you know? And their, their governors are appointed by the president, but they operate independently. So this is not te- this does not tend to be a problem that afflicts Republican presidents because their base doesn't really want them to do things. They might want <laughs> right. them to undo things like repeal yeah. repeal Obamacare. You know, they wanted mm-hmm. Trump to do that, but it's much harder to do things. And this assumption and this really afflicted Carter a lot too. Uh, he was the first uh, you know, post-war president where he really felt this, where the press developed these unrealistic expectations. So in Jimmy Carter's case, I argued in my, in my book, uh, it's very best, that um, you know, he was made and unmade by Watergate expectations. So the only reason he was even elected president was because you know, he was coming after Nixon and Ford and Nick and he ran as a healer, just like Joe Biden. Joe, right. And and so everybody, you know, really wanted healing. So we got fantastic press when he was running for president, as he told me when when I was in more than one interview about this. Um, and then the minute he gets to the White House, as Jody Powell uh said, uh, we not only didn't get a honeymoon, we didn't get a one night stand. <laughs> well, why? Because of this Green Lantern theory, they expected that he was going to be able, you know, he just gotten elected and that he was going to be able to get all this stuff done. So when he couldn't get his energy package through at first, even though he did eventually get most of it through, you know, it was, oh, why is Carter failing? You know? Right. 
And huh. then the same thing happened to Bill Clinton, who had a very rocky first year. Mm-hmm. And there, even though Obama had a more successful first year by his second year in advance of the disastrous 2010 midterms, he also had a Green Lantern problem. Like, why isn't Obama getting more done? Oh, you right. Know? Well, no, I remember those days. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get more into um, the comparison between uh, Jimmy Carter and Joe Biden, which you wrote about in the Washington Post last week. But one more question uh, in terms of expectations. It seems that, in fact, I think Joe Biden admitted last week that his expectations of what he could get done with the Republican with Republicans in the Senate were too high because this is a different brand of senator today. Here's here's uh, President Biden from his news conference last week. Did you ever think that one man out of office could intimidate an entire party? I've had five Republican senators who've told me that they agree with whatever I'm talking about for them to do. But Joe, if I do it, I'm going to defeat it in the primary. It's a different gang of Republicans than he used to work with. Yeah, it is. Um, And they say something very different in public than they do in private. And it is the big story of 2021, I think historians will agree, is that even after January 6th, you still had this moral cowardice in, in the Republican Party. And that, you know, this is the great character test of their lives. And with very, very few exceptions, they're failing that character test, which is to stand up to a would-be tyrant and do anything they can to make sure that he doesn't become president again and end American democracy. And the fact that they, um, you know, to hold their job or not spend more in a primary, in a bloody primary, that they would be um, so terrified of him um, is really depressing. But I do think that historians will also say that Biden was naive about the reality of today's Republican Party. And, and you know, he should have understood that um, this party had been poisoned uh, a long time ago. You know, um, Obama had the same problem. I, I remember um, when I was working on my first Obama book um, and I was talking to a congressman named George Miller. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who... Um, insiders know is responsible for more health and education legislation than any other single legislator uh, of the last 40 years. Absolutely. Um, and he and Nancy Pelosi, his colleague from the California delegation, worked very closely with each other. He chaired a powerful committee in the House for many years. And so at the very beginning of the Obama administration, his first week, he goes over and he meets with the House Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're, we're in a crisis, uh, the likes of which we hadn't seen since 1933 when Roosevelt took over, which is the subject of my first book, uh, The First 100 Days of FDR. And at that time, the Republicans uh, realized the country was in deep trouble and they came together with Roosevelt. Now, within a few months, they started acting like the opposition again. But at the beginning, when we were in really deep trouble, they came together with Roosevelt. So Obama expected that the Republicans were going to do the same thing. And, and that when he, you know, he introduced his, his rescue plan that they would sign on the way they had in 1933. And they didn't. 
right? Instead, mm-hmm. we found out later they went to a restaurant on the night of the Obama inauguration and plotted to do right. anything they could to destroy his presidency, which was a profoundly unpatriotic act. So at the time I was talking to George, he didn't know yet about this, this famous dinner uh, at the restaurant. But what he said to me was, Obama doesn't get it. <laughs> These uh-huh. people are never going to do anything to help him. And a lot of them, I hate to say it, this is George Miller, they're not good people. And they're not people of goodwill. They're not on the level. They don't tell the truth. He was talking about, you know, the heirs to Newt Gingrich. Gingrich had been gone for a while by then, but you know, the the implacable right-wingers in the House. Right. And who were by that time were already dominating the Republican caucus. And that then infected the Senate. And so what you have here is a poison weed uh, in the form of the Republican Party. And Joe Biden just didn't get that. Uh, by the way, uh, just I know this is a tangent, but you mentioned Newt Gingrich. Um, uh, it, it's interesting. I was just looking at his Wikipedia page actually a little while ago. And in the, on the Wikipedia page, there's a sentence about a political scientist. Um, they, I don't say credit. They hold Gingrich responsible that he's had more to do with the political division in this country like than anybody else. Uh, and we saw that again. Jonathan, I have to ask you about this. Um, just a couple of days ago on Fox News Sunday, when yeah. Newt Gingrich was talking about the January 6th Select Committee, which, remember, exists because Kevin McCarthy rejected a 9-11 kind of commission, bipartisan commission, to investigate the January 6th attack. But here is what Newt Gingrich says may lay in store for the members of that committee, Newt Gingrich. We're going to have a Republican majority in the House and a Republican majority in the Senate. And all these people who've been so tough and so mean and so nasty are going to be delivered subpoenas for every document, every conversation, every tweet, every email, uh, because I think it's clear that these are people who are literally just running over the law, pursuing innocent people, causing them to spend thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees for no justification. And it's basically a lynch mob. And unfortunately, the Attorney General of the United States has joined that lynch mob and is totally misusing the FBI. And I think when you have a Republican Congress, this is all going to come crashing down and the wolves are going to find out that they're now sheep and they're the ones who are, in fact, going to, I think, face a real risk of jail uh, for the kind of laws they're breaking. Even for a political hack like Newt Gingrich, that's pretty strong stuff. Yeah, let's just unpack that for a second. Um, First, he talks about mean and nasty people. He's the one who introduced smash mouth politics in the post-war era. His predecessor was a guy named Bob Michael, a, uh, you know, a conservative Republican from Illinois, but a decent man. And, and Gingrich just turned, uh, turned American politics into the politics of personal destruction. So he shouldn't be talking, saying anything about mean and nasty. Then he uses the word lynch mob. Let's just pause on that phrase for a second. So what is January 6th investigating? They are investigating a lynch mob that put a noose on the grounds of the Capitol and then marauded around the Capitol saying, hang Pence 
And where's Nancy? That's the definition of a lynch mob. And he's calling a committee of Congress the lynch mob. The man is deeply unpatriotic, deeply sympathetic to treason, and completely beyond the pale in those comments. But unfortunately, we're in such a pickle now as a country that his prognosis of what will happen, except these guys being sent to jail, which is not going to happen. But all the subpoenas that, you know, Kevin McCarthy's House of Representatives will send a year from now, if they take control, that will happen. And, 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 and it will just, you know, be a big, ugly brawl in, in 2023 as, as, you know, the Republican chairs of these committees try to, you know, impose payback on Liz Cheney and the Democrats who are doing their job trying to get to the bottom of the first uh, lynch mob to penetrate our capital ever. The only other time it happened, it was British troops in the War of 1812. So it's pretty rich for Newt Gingrich to be talking about lynch mob And I hope anybody who interviews him, even on Fox, wherever they interview him, needs to focus on that word lynch mob and question him about it. Uh, And you and I remember when Newt Gingrich became speaker, actually when he was running, he promised that he would turn the congressional committees into attack dog squads, right, to go after Democrats. That's what he saw their purpose was back in that time, uh, and now uh, he's just, attacking. Just one other thing, since you yeah. have me going, Bill. I'm <laughs> so, so he wanted to, you know, I when Please. I wrote a column in Newsweek, you know, I when he became speaker, before he became speaker, I took him seriously. He was a you know major emerging figure on Capitol Hill. I got to know him. I enjoyed certain uh, intellectual bantering with him, um, even though... I found him a little bit mentally unbalanced even then because he would, <laughs> he would be having you'd be having a good conversation with him on on the merits of an issue and then he would just go into a rage about something. But you know he he wanted to be the face of the Republican Party in the 21st century, and even after he lost his speakership. He, you know, had claim to doing that in in some way, at least as an intellectual force uh, inside um, the radical Republican right. But now he's just a toady and a lackey for uh, a a, a demagogue. And all he does is go around, you know, I don't know, maybe because Trump appointed his wife to be the envoy to the Vatican, but he's just a, a butt boy for Donald Trump now. It's not really a very attractive way, even within the context of Republican politics, to for him to be uh, ending his his career is just another toady. It's kind of sad. Uh, yeah, and yet Donald Trump and Kevin McCarthy in the last week or so have both appointed Newt Gingrich uh, to deliver, or I say to um, put together, to concoct the winning message for 2022 for Republicans. They're calling Newt Gingrich back, resurrected him, to come up with basically a new contract for America or yeah, on America. Yeah, it, because it worked amazingly well for them in 1994. And the mm. contract with America, you know, uh, was a, a brilliant piece of political sloganeering. 
And Gingrich is, he remains the only one in the conservative movement who actually has any ideas. A lot of them aren't good ideas, but at least they're ideas. So let's just focus on that for a split second. At the uh, 2020 Republican convention, they had so few ideas, they didn't even have a <laughs> right. platform. So they it was just whatever Donald <laughs> Trump wants. First time since the development of political parties in the 1790s that a political party went into a general election without a platform. So, so uh, you know, it's not at all a surprise that they would rely on Gingrich since he's the only one. And he's also, I mean, as, you know, as former Republicans like Stuart Stevens and others have said, you know, they're the stupid party now. And he's the only one uh, with, uh, you know, any kind of really significant uh, IQ um, who has any kind of uh, leadership role in that party. It's certainly not Kevin McCarthy. I guess, you know, Mitch McConnell is very smart, but, um, you know, generally speaking, they have um, a bunch of, uh, well, they have a new generation of Harvard Law School educated politicians who have high IQs and Tucker Carlson certainly has a decent IQ, but in terms of developing a, um, you know, a platform and being interested in policy, which is different than a political intelligence, a policy intelligence, the cu- the cupboard is almost bare. Uh, uh, I, I I was laughing because I remember Mitch, Mitch McConnell was asked last week, uh, the morning after President Biden's news conference, where he issued the challenge, what are you for? One reporter asked Mitch McConnell, what is your agenda? And he said, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, hello. Right. All right. I want to get back to Joe Biden and Jimmy Carter here, uh, Jonathan. Let's take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod, and we'll come back and uh, unpack that uh, column, uh, which got a lot of attention, your column in the Washington Post. And today's podcast with uh, Jonathan Alter brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. One and a half million members strong. The Teamsters Union are America's largest and most diverse labor union. They represent every aspect of American American workforce from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, airline pilots, to zookeepers under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, who will soon be retiring from the Teamsters Union after 24 years as president of the union. We salute uh, President Hoffa, the members of the Teamsters Union, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's podcast. Our guest today, uh, Jonathan Alter, presidential historian. He's columnist for The Daily Beast, contributor you see him so often on MSNBC, and author of three best-selling books on American presidents, on FDR, two on Barack Obama, and on Jimmy Carter, his most recent book, His Very Best. Uh, so, Jonathan, the comparison has been made in this uh, one-year anniversary of Joe Biden uh, to Jimmy Carter. Some people, when they say that, they don't mean it uh, approvingly. Is the comparison fair? Well, um, so uh, I tried to write about this, uh, not just in the Washington Post, but um, I have a Substack newsletter called Old Goats, where I interview people of our vintage bill um, <laughs> who still have something to offer. And then sometimes I do, uh, you know, a column in there. And um, what the uh, story that I have up that's right now is an interview with Jerry Rafshoon, oh, yeah. who um, was one of Carter's top aides. And then I, I also kind of try to unpack the argument that I made uh, in the Washington Post. So obviously, uh, this comparison, when it's made by Republicans, is meant as an insult. And um, but there, there is, you know, when you get beyond glib insults and misusing history, which is often done for political purposes with uh, very facile comparisons, there are some interesting things to look at. And and so Carter was. Uh, besieged by inflation. The difference was it was uh, 13% and went as high as 15% in his last year. Uh, and he obviously, you know, he had uh, surging energy prices. Um, he had uh, problems in Afghanistan, he had problem with Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, um, and he also, as I mentioned, he came to the presidency as a healer in the same way that Biden did after, you know, terrible political trauma in the form of the Watergate uh, affair. And, and yet, um, despite the similarity in some of the challenges and the fact that both Carter and Biden are um, uh, basically uh, non-interventionist in terms of their foreign policies, um, I think at the end of the day, the differences are more significant. And the most important thing to understand is that there's a sort of an apples and oranges thing going on here where Biden's first year of his presidency Mm -hmm. is being compared to Carter's fourth year, 1980, which was pretty disastrous. 
And and so if you actually compare them first year to first year, Biden is much less popular than Carter was at the end of his first year. Interesting. And by the way, um, Biden was the first uh, president to endorse, first senator to endorse Jimmy Carter. And huh. he stuck with him when Ted Kennedy challenged him in 1980. Um, so, I mean, obviously, you know, Biden is an insider. Carter was an outsider. Uh, Biden is old. Carter was pretty young when he was president. So there are a lot of other differences. But I, I think the the big one actually relates to inflation and this assumption that because, um, you know, Carter had inflation, that Biden's inflation will stay and that he'll it will destroy his presidency. Inflation was not only worse then, it was different. It was embedded in the system through what are, were called cost of living adjustments. In the uh, years ago, both of us are old enough to remember this. Um, you know, when somebody said cola, they weren't talking about a soft drink. They were <laughs> right. talking about cost, cost of living adjustments living were built into the economy. And then you also had um, supply interruptions from Iran, which we could have again. And another comparison between Biden and Carter is that they both have you know, big problems with Iran. Um, but after the Iranian revolution, you had these supply interruptions. And if we could have that again, if Israel were to attack Iran, which is quite possible, you would have Iranian supply interruptions. Uh, but the difference is that we um, aren't nearly as reliant on foreign oil. And so energy prices have doubled in the last year, which has been you know, pretty disastrous for us short term, at least. Uh, in a 10-year period, they went up 14-fold in the 70s. That's not 14%, that's 14-fold. Doubling, doubling again, doubling again, doubling again. So we had a situation in terms of energy price completely out of control. Then to try to control inflation, they jacked up interest rates. They went as high as 21%. And for much of the, uh, most of the Carter presidency, they were in double digits. Right now they're negligible. So the Fed has a lot of room to raise interest rates a little bit to tamp down inflation without shutting down the economy, which is what happened, you know, uh, uh, starting under Carter and then under in the early Reagan years. Basically, Paul Volcker was able to shut down inflation, end inflation by creating a recession. Well, this time to taper inflation, we're not going to have to create an, a recession with disastrous interest rates. And by the way, people think that, you know, Carter wasn't uh, reelected, uh, uh, you know, just because of the hostage crisis and because Reagan was such a great candidate, because of the Kennedy challenge, all those were very important. But trying to run for reelection when, you know, you have like 18% interest rates a couple months before the election. I mean, Bob Carey, the Democratic senator, former senator, who said that Jimmy Carter's pardoning of draft dodgers in his first week as president was one of the most courageous things that any president has ever done and a huge sense of closure that it brought to him. He was not in politics yet in 1980. He was running restaurants in Omaha. And he said he voted for Reagan because you know he couldn't run his business with oh. 19% interest rates. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I never heard that. Never heard that story before. So, uh, isn't 
there's something else maybe that Joe Biden can find a little um, um, reassurance, and that is the fact that uh, most people would agree, no, that Jimmy Carter was a better president than his reputation uh, is right now, right? I mean, he accomplished a great deal as president. No question. No question. So I, you know, what I tried to do in his, his very best, first, I got really interested in his early life because he he led this epic American life and his life in the Jim Crow South. And then as a young adult where he's not always covering himself in glory, he's dodging the civil rights movement. Um, and But knowing the decent right thing to do all along. And then when he becomes governor, he you know integrates Georgia state government as he uh, later brought diversity for the first time to the federal government. Um, and um, as president, journalists look at presidents in terms of their popularity. Historians need to look at presidents in terms of what they got accomplished for the country. Mm-hmm. So when you take a hard look, warts and all, at Jimmy Carter, what I found, and I think other historians are now uh, agreeing with this, and that's why we're starting to get this reassessment of him the way we got uh, with Harry Truman uh, in the 1990s when David McCullough wrote a, an important book about him. When you take a look, what you find is that he was a political failure, obviously, one-term president, swamped by events, but a substantive and even visionary success. So just to tick it off you know, very quickly, in terms of foreign policy, obviously, the Iran uh, hostage crisis was a disaster. Um, but all the hostages came home safely, and it's not fair to blame the Iranian Revolution on Jimmy Carter. It would have happened anyway. Otherwise, a triumph. So the, the one that Carter thinks will be remembered for the longest is normalization of relations with China, which became the mm-hmm. foundation of our global economy. This was accomplished by Jimmy Carter. So Nixon opened the door, but if uh, Ford had been elected, because of the anti-communism in the Republican Party, we would have been waiting a long time before we started um, that relationship, uh, which um, you know led to all kinds of things that we could talk about. The Panama Canal treaties, something everybody's forgotten about. Reagan helped build his career in opposition to us turning mm-hmm. the canal back to the Panamanians. It's now clear, and the the reason that Carter was able to get those treaties approved two-thirds in the Senate, uh, even though two-thirds of the country was against it because of what Reagan had told them, is because the Joint Chiefs were then saying that if the treaties were not approved, and they were approved by ridiculously narrow margins, uh, there would be a major war in Central America, and we would have to have 100,000 troops there in perpetuity to protect uh, commerce and protect that canal. So Carter prevented a major war in Central America. Guer- would have been a guerrilla war that we'd probably still be fighting. Uh, in terms of the human rights policy, yep. mm-hmm. uh, even many conservatives say that this helped end the, end the Cold War. And even though it was hypocritical in certain ways, it kicked off a democratic revolution around the world, which is only now being rolled back with uh, some new authoritarian governments. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, obviously Camp David, uh, most durable peace treaty of the post-war era, 
and after fighting four wars against each other, there hasn't been a shot fired in anger between Israel and Egypt. So the list goes on on the domestic side, you know, uh, major ethics legislation, the first reform of the civil uh, service in 100 years, two new cabinet departments, plus the creation of FEMA, uh, you know, uh, a, a doubling of the size of the national park system, most, mostly by protecting Alaska. Uh, the list goes on and on, and many um, sm seemingly small things that people forget about. So airline and trucking deregulation, airline deregulation allowed people to go visit their relatives. They, you know, it, it cost $1,300 in current dollars to fly to, uh, from New York to California mm. before, um, um, you know, before airline deregulation and trucking deregulation although there's some problems now in the trucking industry, it created the just-in-time delivery system that allowed, um, you know, Amazon to be even be possible. Uh, and so uh, I could talk all day about this, but in my book deals not just with his post-presidency and obviously with his presidency, but with this really epic American life, uh, a life of real um, decency and achievement. That book, again, is his very best, an assessment of the Jimmy Carter presidency. It's actually a biography, biography of, of, of Jimmy Carter. So I, I don't want people to think it's a, a policy book because actually only about half of it is, is about his presidency. And it has a lot of uh, fun political stories in it. So it seems that you would be saying to Joe Biden about, I looked at his poll numbers this morning before before we talked. Yesterday, uh, Fox News poll, 47% approve of Joe Biden's, the job he's doing, 52% disapprove on Friday. Rasmussen was out, uh, worse numbers, 41% approve, 58 disapprove. I guess what you're saying to Joe Biden is don't worry about the poll numbers, <laughs> just get things done and history will take care of it? No, I, I think you always have to care about the poll numbers, um, but you have to recognize that, you know, um, over the long term, they do go up and down. So Carter went down to the mid-20s in 1979. And then after the hostages were seized and the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, he went up close to 60%. So he was yo-yoing up and down. Now, our system isn't really like that anymore. And Trump uh, was pretty stable in, you know, right around where Biden is for most of his presidency. He didn't seem to take any grief for it. No, he, didn't, right. he, he didn't see stories. I mean, there were a lot of critical stories about Donald Trump, but you didn't see, oh, he's failing. He's a political <laughs> failure because he's only at 44% in the latest, you know. No, you didn't see that. And, and because Democrats are judged by a different standard. So, but I don't think that Biden should get complacent. He does need to retool certain things, but he shouldn't like fire his staff and, you know, try to reinvent his presidency. He just needs to get COVID under control and, and uh, you know, see if he can deliver on at least parts of Build Back Better. Uh, and then if, the econ if he can bring inflation down, I don't think there'll be a wipeout this fall. I think it's it's really way too early to say that the Democrats are going to be wiped out. Now, obviously, if the midterms were next week, they'd get wiped out. Mm -hmm. But you know, you know, 
10 months is an eternity in American politics. And so, you know, a lot can change, including those poll numbers. But I also, in the longer term, Bill, I don't think his poll numbers are, his personal approval ratings are hugely significant because, in my opinion, I don't think he should run for reelection. Mm-hmm. He's just too old and he should open the door for the next generation of Democrats. So if you look at it that way, you know, and you, you might think of him more as a second term president, you know, who who is his election was enormously important in saving us from Trump. And he will, by any standard, be a president of achievement because he had, as you indicated, a very successful first year in, in ways, you know, it, the infrastructure bill alone, which Trump couldn't get done, it was huge. Uh, and and there are many other things he's done with judges and other things that he'll be able to point to. So does he need to, you know, stay, get his numbers up some uh, just in order to avoid a wipeout? Yes. Does he need to get them up, you know, to get reelected? Well, that assumes that he's running for re-election. And that's something that I think even he hasn't determined and will, there's a lot of time for other Democrats to emerge. Another thing that drives yeah. me crazy is people say, no, where are the other Democrats? You know, we don't yeah. want Kamala Harris. <laughs> like, where's the bench? And, you know, I, again, just to go back to Jimmy Carter. So at this stage uh, in, in 1974, in early 1974, Carter was still governor of Georgia. Uh, he wasn't on any list of possible presidents oh, for 1976. Right. A year later, in 1975, he still was at 0% in the polls, even after he'd been running for president for a while, and did not make the top 30. Mm. Then <laughs> by September of 1975, this is six less than, it's four months before the uh, Iowa caucuses. He's at number 30, right? (laughs) So, you know, it's just, and then, you know, by the end of 1975, he started coming on and people started noticing him. You know, so there's just so much time for politicians that nobody's ever heard of, governors, senators, people who are not in politics, because you don't need to have been a governor or senator anymore to be president, as Trump showed. There's so much time for new figures to emerge in American politics, that uh, people just shouldn't worry about that right now. Uh, so let, let me wrap, uh, and final question, Jonathan, and you've been so generous with your time. But, you know, um, a lot of people believe, and I'm one of them, that there's more at stake today than politics as usual, that we really are facing at the state level uh, through what Donald Trump is up to and his uh, crazy supporters, a real threat, uh, an attack on our democracy itself, uh, and a threat to undermine our democracy and our democratic system. Uh, are you worried about that? And do you believe democracy will survive? So in answer to the first question, I'm extremely worried about that. And I've actually lost more sleep this past year than I did when Trump was president, because Trumpism has metastasized and the big lie is metastasized, and the Republicans are much more aggressive at the uh, local level and putting, uh, you know, putting um, partisans in to, yeah, so that the yep. next time they can steal the election. And I think, you know, I school boards, election ver- officials, right, yeah. right. So 
what to do about it. Um, the answer is to not just, you know, for those who, who are listening who might be, um, you know, Democratic donors. Um, yes, it's very important to uh, give to House and Senate races and this time to governor's races because a lot of the machinery of local elections, the governor has a lot to say about it and they can veto things that the legislatures do if you get a Democratic governor. So it's very important that, you know, states like Wisconsin continue to have Democratic governors. Um, but Democrats have to start running for local office. And so there's this wonderful organization that's still pretty underfunded called Run for Something. I know. Yes. You know, to try yeah. to get people to run for these local offices. And and by the way, like my my late mother was the first woman elected in Cook County. She held county huh? office, elective office, wow. commissioner of the Metropolitan Sanitary District. We we made up a joke poster when you flush, think of me. Vote for Joanne Alter for Sanitary District, you know. But she had a wonderful experience. She, she did it for years. And, you know, local government can be really a really rewarding thing to be involved in. And somehow people, even if they don't want to run for something, they've got to stop ringing their hands and start ringing doorbells, you know. And if they if you don't get that grassroots rebirth in the Democratic Party, we will lose our democracy. So I am, I am scared. I'm scared. We're at an inflection point in the next couple of cycles. I mean, if the Republicans win in 2022, that's not the end. You know, that's what will likely happen. Um, but um, if Trump comes back in 2024, it's, it's lights out for American democracy. And I think people have to understand the stakes um, and they have to understand that, uh, you know, they may have been incompetent in, uh, in their certain elements of their coup, although the more we learn, the more we learn how much planning they actually had done. Uh, they may have been incompetent the last time. They won't be the next time. And it reminds me um, of something that Franklin Roosevelt said uh, that I have in The Defining Moment, uh, that, that book I wrote about him. Um, so shortly after uh, he became president, he had a visitor and he said, you know, Mr. President, if you succeed, you'll be our greatest president. And if you fail, you'll be our worst president. And Roosevelt turned to him and said, no, if I fail, I'll be our last president. Wow. And, uh, and that, that was what the stakes were for democracy mm -hmm. in the early 1930s. And those are still the stakes. But this time, it's not the failure of Joe Biden. You know, if he fails, he won't be our last president. It's the failure if the American people fail, if the Democratic Party fails, then we have a future that is dominated by an authoritarian political party. And we know from the regimes they respect, you know, and Trump just endorsed Viktor Orban yeah, in, right. in, uh, in Hungary. So they do still have elections in Hungary, still have elections in, you know, these other authoritarian governments, but they're, they're rigged. They're pretend democracies. And we've already, for a variety of reasons, had, you know, certain erosions in our democracy um, that, you know, relate to the structure of the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College and so forth. 
but you know we still have a functioning democracy. These other countries, you know, the place that Tucker Carlson respects, the CPAC is going to have a, a meeting in Hungary. That's not democracy, and that's our future if we don't all go out and do everything we can to address the democracy crisis. And it starts by recognizing that it is a crisis and should be referred to as such. So I'm going to be looking this year, you know, and doing searches at the end of the year to see how much that phrase democracy crisis has penetrated. Because before you can fully address it and arouse people so that they break precedent and go to the polls and in record numbers for a midterm, which which is what's going to be required this fall, you have to have them understand that, yes, COVID is a big issue for their family. Obviously, the economy is number one for their family. But there are these other stakes that democracy is on the line and we have a democracy crisis. And on that, and I, uh, just to you know answer your second question, I am hopeful because there's a history of when people are told, especially black voters, are told that somebody's trying to take away their vote, they turn out in greater numbers because people have fought and died for their right to vote. And it reminds me of a story from 2012 when uh, shortly before the uh, 2012 election when it was President Obama against Mitt Romney and Romney's people uh, were telling me that there was going to be what they described as a white wave in Pennsylvania and that Romney was going to win Pennsylvania and be elected president. And I called up Michael Nutter, who was the mayor of Philadelphia, and said, is there a white wave coming in Pennsylvania? He goes, there's a wave coming, all right. It's a black wave, and it's going to blow you away. And he was right, because there had been voter suppression in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And once those black voters were, were you know, informed about it, they, they turned out in enormous numbers, not just because Barack Obama was on, on the ballot, but because they, they felt that their, their right to vote was being taken away. And so that's, that's what makes me hopeful uh, about uh, this November, is I think if the democracy crisis can be surfaced as a first-tier issue, that we can have a, a, a highly unusual turnout for a midterm election. Uh, and that's a hopeful note to end on, Jonathan Alter. So great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and all your great work. Uh, we'll put a link up for uh, uh, our listeners to uh, get a copy of his very best on the episode notes of this podcast, Jonathan. And uh, thank you again. Carry on. and We'll see you down the road. Thanks very much, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Jonathan Alter. Uh, On the episode notes to today's podcast, we'll have a link for you to purchase uh, any one of Jonathan's best-selling books, again, on FDR, Barack Obama, or Jimmy Carter, and also a link to his great Substack column called Old Goats. And we'll be back on Friday with this week's roundtable and certainly be talking a lot more about Newt Gingrich and his declaration that members of the January 6th Select Committee could end up in jail. For what? For doing their job? (laughs) So come back and see us on Friday. Meanwhile, take care of yourselves, be strong, be safe, be sane, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.